If you would, please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Acts chapter 23. Today we'll consider verses 12 through 35 together. I want to remind you of where we've been. It's been a couple of weeks since I've been here. Maybe you missed a couple of weeks. Maybe you're visiting. And so want everyone to be on the same page. The Apostle Paul has ended his third and final missionary journey. He's headed back to Jerusalem, desiring to continue ministering to the church, although he's warned repeatedly of the danger that awaits him once he gets there. And yet, what does he say? That he feels constrained by the Spirit of God to go. He is undeterred by the threats and dangers that await him. He'd said back in chapter 20, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That was his motivation. That was his goal to finish the course that the Lord had set before him. Well, he enters Jerusalem. And when he does, he finds a less than unified church. There is skepticism swirling around Paul due to his close and extensive work in ministering to those who were not ethnically Jewish. And Paul finds himself in a lose-lose situation that ends with him going to the temple so that he might be made ritually pure. Well, once in the temple... Paul is recognized by some of his old enemies from Ephesus. Uh, These are ethnic Jews, practicing Jews, uh, Jews who take their religion very seriously, those who are very hostile to Christ and to his disciples. These are Jews who are just like Paul was prior to his conversion. And they think they have Paul right where they want him. He's vulnerable. And so they yell out accusations that are false. The mob mentality sets in and they seize Paul and drag him from the temple and begin to beat him. No doubt they would have killed Paul then and there. But in God's providence, there were Roman soldiers nearby. Soldiers who were charged with keeping the peace of the city. And so they rush into the crowd and arrest Paul and try to learn why the crowd is so upset. But they're unable to. So Paul is brought back to their barracks. There's a lot that happens while Paul is in Roman custody. We've looked at these events over the past few weeks. Paul is given permission to address the crowd but it only infuriates them even more. 
He's then taken into the barracks and is also scur- and is almost scourged. He narrowly avoids getting whipped cruelly. It's uh, um, put off because he reveals that he is indeed a Roman citizen, which is not an unimportant fact. He has rights as a Roman citizen. And so he's, he is not scourged. And he's given the opportunity to speak with the Jewish religious leadership, which again fails, and ends with them wanting to tear him limb from limb. Paul is then taken back into the safety of the Roman barracks, dejected, physically exhausted. His attempts to testify to Christ and to the gospel of grace have fallen on deaf ears and granite-like hearts. He's alone. He's experiencing what Christians over the centuries have called the dark night of the soul. But what happens? We saw this a couple weeks ago. The Lord visits him. That's where we left off. The supreme commander of the heavenly host comes in the flesh and stood by Paul in those Roman barracks. And what did he say? Take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. That was the message he received that night. Paul, don't be afraid. The course that I've set for you does not end violently at the hands of your countrymen here in Jerusalem. I'm sending you to Rome, and you will testify about me to them. There's a story about John Bunyan, where a John John Bunyan was the the English Baptist, uh, the English Baptist who who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, and he was arrested because he wouldn't stop preaching. And there's a story about a Quaker coming and visiting him in prison. And the Quaker said something like, oh, the Lord sent me to look for you. And I've been searching all over Europe, looking in prison after prison, trying to find you. And John Bunyan said, if the Lord had sent you, he would have told you where I was. Because he knew where I was all along. The Lord knew where Paul was and he visited him. And he knows where you are. He knows your circumstances. He knows your needs. This Sunday in particular, I'm reminded that he is intimately aware of the needs of those in Rolling Fork and Amory, those in Covington and Bethel Springs, those at Covenant Presbyterian Church and the Covenant School in Nashville. And to quote Harry Ironside, 
God is never closer to his people than when they cannot see his face. I was thinking through that statement and I thought of a friend coming up to me and giving me a big bear hug and wrapping me up. And as I'm in that bear hug, I am not able to see the face of my friend. I think that's what Ironside is getting at. There are dark days, days when it seems as though God is silent and far away. Days when it appears that He doesn't care or we're tempted to believe that He's forgotten us. God is never closer to His people than when they cannot see His face. The Lord comes near to Paul and provides a much-needed morale boost and tells Paul of his future plans, and then he departs. And this is where we left off. And today, we will see the sovereign Lord providentially moving pieces, some of those pieces smaller than others, some larger. But in it, we will see that his words are true, Creation is going to bend and respond to the word of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we will see that no scheme of man can hinder God from accomplishing his purposes. Let's pray and then look at this text together. Father, we do thank you for the scriptures They are ever fresh and ever new. As we read these lines in a moment, maybe they are familiar to us. But Father, we ask that you would feed us. Would you feed us each time we come to your word and open it? We are a needy people and we need your word. And so we ask... Holy Spirit, that you would come and you would bless us and you would write your word upon our hearts. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll read our text, Acts 23, verse 12 through verse 35. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. This was more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you, as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, 
Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them. For more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, Tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then they called two of the, then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready two hundred soldiers with seventy horsemen and two hundred spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to His Excellency, the Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against this man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, Brought Paul, uh, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. You know, Hollywood could have a lot of fun with this narrative, couldn't they? I mean, there's some serious drama. I I love the detail that Luke provides. I mean, I, I can see it. I can see these various scenes. It it would begin with a um, picturing a dark, smoke-filled back room filled with these 40 bloodthirsty men taking a vow. And then there's a young boy learning of this conspiracy, rushing through the busy streets of Jerusalem to deliver the news and, and being let 
into the Roman barracks, the Antonia Fortress. And then, of course, Paul on horseback, surrounded by soldiers and spearmen, leaving Jerusalem in the dark of night. I just imagine them making their way, snaking through the city, every alleyway, the the possible threat of a man with a sword rushing out towards them. I mean, it really grabs my attention. And we're going to look at it together. I've got three different divisions in this text. And the first I've entitled, A Conspiracy Unmasked. It's interesting that the same night, the Lord visits the Apostle Paul in prison and says, take courage. I'm sending you to Rome. That same night, you have this dark, smoke-filled back room where 40 men make a plot to bind themselves by an oath that they will not eat or drink until Paul has been killed. These are assassins. And they promise to themselves, we will not eat a morsel of food or drink a drop of water until Paul is dead. It's either him or us. That's how strong this vow is. Either he's going to die by our hands or we are going to die from lack of food and drink. I just had a couple brief thoughts. I mean, obviously these men have forgotten the danger of making rash vows. They can simply remember their own history. Back to the time of the judges. To that reckless, foolhardy vow that Jephthah made. Remember, he said, Lord, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return shall be yours, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. Who came out of Jephthah's door to meet him once he returned home? His only child, a daughter, who came out to celebrate her father's victory. A stupid, wicked vow. And so it is with this oath that these men have made. They should have known better, but that's not the only thing. They're they're assuming to themselves a right that God says is mine. Deuteronomy 32, God says, I put to death and I bring to life. And yet these men try to play God. We will put Paul to death. For what crime? What had Paul done to merit such reckless hate? What had he done to these men to make them say not a sip of water until Paul's blood is spilled? Is because he said things like this. The law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. 
For in Christ you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to promise. When we were children... We were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Words like that made them crazy. Paul saying things like that to the heathen, to the dirty Gentiles. They hated him for it. And they were prepared to die because of it. But as Luke tells us, this conspiracy not only involved these 40 men, but also the chief priest and elders. Those religious leaders that Paul had spoken with the day before, they were involved in this as well. I can hear the assassins saying, please, fathers, ask the Romans to bring the apostate out. Say that you wish to speak with him again so that resolution might be found and peace restored to this city. And when he's out in the streets, we will fall on him and kill him so that he will never again insult our high priest, so that he will never again teach against the law, so that he will never again defile the temple. And I can hear the chief priests and elders respond. We will get him out of the barracks and you put the knife between his ribs. We must not forget just how offended the natural man is to the gospel of grace. They hate it. I was reminded of a connection this morning. Between these actions and the hymn of preparation we'll sing before the Lord's Supper. The hymn, How Sweet and Awesome is the Place. A hymn that is based on the parable of the great banquet that Luke, that, that Luke records in chapter 14. And what struck me this morning was the third stanza. And in it that The hymn writer asks, why was I made to hear your voice and enter while there's room? When thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come. The natural heart, man apart from the grace 
of God would rather starve than come to this table and commune with Christ. Don't we see that here? I've entitled our next division, Many Meetings. The conspiracy that we've just learned of is in direct opposition to the words spoken by the Lord. That night, the Lord came to Paul and said, Take courage, you must also testify of me in Rome. And that same night, you have these men saying, We will not eat or drink until Paul is dead. How would the Lord respond? These these assassins are in cahoots with the Jewish elite in Jerusalem. How would the Lord respond? By using a young boy. This murderous plot is spoiled by the warning of a young boy, Paul's nephew. We see this in verse 16. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul had a sister? Apparently so. This is the first she's mentioned. he's, He's written... 13 books in the New Testament, and he never mentions her. And she has a son. And I don't know if both of them are sympathetic to Paul's cause, but nephew is. Nephew is sympathetic. And so he goes to warn Uncle Paul of this danger. Now, we don't know how they found out. Possibly his, his family, his sister and nephew were in the same social circles as these 40 men or in the same circles as the members of the Sanhedrin. It's possible that maybe there was a Pharisee who was a member of this council who wasn't entirely comfortable with first degree murder. And so he, he passed on the information. We don't know how nephew gets this news, but he does. And he goes straight to Uncle Paul to warn him. And from context clues here, it appears as though he is a young boy. Young enough for the Roman tribune to take him by the hand. But that's all it takes. Our God can use anything and anyone. These 40 assassins are foiled by a little boy holding the commander's hand and saying, please don't send Paul to the council tomorrow. There are bad men who are wanting to hurt him. They've said they aren't going to eat anything until he's dead. Please don't send him. I had to come and tell you. God uses... Little things to accomplish his purposes. Do not think you are too young to be of use to the Lord. Do not think you are too insignificant to be used by the Lord. Please do not think that this little congregation is not large enough to have an impact on the kingdom of God. 
out of what did God make our father Adam? Dust. The exodus, an entire nation being brought out of the land of Egypt began with what? A runaway who was a shepherd out in a barren wilderness seeing a bush burning but was not consumed. Or most dramatically, when God sent his own son here to take on flesh, he chose a poor unknown virgin from Nazareth to be the mother of the son of God. Remember how our God works and the means that he often uses. There are many meetings here. There's the boy, nephew, who comes and meets with Paul. Then Paul calls one of the centurions and and asks for nephew to be taken to the tribune. And then nephew takes tribune by the hand and relates all that he knows. The tribune then says, do not tell anyone what you have just done. You, You will become the next target for these men. And and then there's a meeting where the, the tribune, Claudius Lysias, brings two centurions and says, get ready. I need 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea tonight and also provide mounts for Paul so that he might ride and be safely brought to the governor. Paul is getting out of town that night. And this leads to my third And final heading, a journey in the dark. This is the scene that I kind of hinted to at the beginning. Just a great movie scene. The sun has gone down. It's dark in Jerusalem. Outside of the Antonia Fortress, there are soldiers and horsemen gathering. Paul is placed in the very middle of them on a horse. They have to quickly travel and navigate the narrow, dark streets of the city. Just imagine the tension. And they make it out. And they travel on through the night until they come to a place called Antipetris. This is a Roman military outpost. It would have been 35 miles from the gates of Jerusalem. And at that point, they deemed it safe enough for the infantry and the spearmen to stay there and then return to Jerusalem. And Paul is taken by the 70 cavalry on the remaining 30 miles to Caesarea. Now again, I want to highlight this. We've seen God work with small things, but he can also work with large things as well. How many Roman soldiers do you think would have been garrisoned in Jerusalem? What was the military presence there? Well, from what I read, there are estimates of just in Jerusalem, between 600 and 1,000 men. 600 on the low side, 1,000 on the kind of higher side. If you go with the higher number, that means that almost half of the soldiers garrisoned there are ordered to protect Paul and deliver him safely to the governor. I I love it. You have 
God using a young boy and then also using the military might of Rome to ensure that his purposes are accomplished. We would do well to remember what we're taught in Proverbs 21, which says that no wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. The will of God will be done. Paul's life is kept perfectly safe. His enemies' purposes are fruitless. In close, what I want you to hear is that this God is your God. This isn't just a narrative we're reading of a historical event that happened 2,000 years ago. It is. But this same God is your God. John Calvin exhorts the believer saying, quote, Therefore, let us learn to rely on the Lord. Even if we cannot see any ordinary way to save ourselves, for he will even find a way through impassable places. You know what impassable means? Trying to drive your car on the road and maybe a tornado has thrown trees and debris across the road so that there is no, not going anywhere. But Calvin says he will find a way through impassable places. I want you to think of that. No way to save ourselves. And yet God found a way through impassable places. Is that not what we have on this table before us today? Is that not the sermon that we will soon taste as we eat the bread and drink the cup? That we were those who were totally unable to save ourselves. We were helpless. Men and women who sinned against a holy God. Men and women who owed a great moral debt to our Creator. Men and women who deserved to die to pay that debt. And the Lord said, I will make a way through this impassable place. I will send my Son to merit the righteousness you so desperately need. He will earn it for you and you will be freely, He will give it to you freely. All you must do is look to Him in faith and claim His righteousness as your own. And in place of His righteousness, He will take your sin. He will assume your debt The debt you owe, he will pay it. He will become a curse on the cross. His blood, not yours, will be shed. The Father will turn his face away from the Son, not you. And then three days later, the Father will raise his Son from the dead to prove to his people that their debt has been paid. 
Our God has found a way through impassable (coughs) places. Praise God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the testimony it gives to your son and to his word. Father, I pray that it, your word, would be written on the hearts of your people. I pray that we would look to Christ, the same one who who visited Paul in those Roman barracks, the same one who, who died on a place called the skull, and the same one who had the stone rolled away three days later, would we look to him as the one who has paid our debt and the one whose righteousness we, uh, we possess by grace through faith. We ask this all in his name. Amen.